0: Today on the podcast, the topic is tipping. The push in Congress to raise the minimum wage is sputtering. How does that bode for the parallel effort to abolish the separate, significantly lower tipped minimum wage? And we also talk about a case where a reveler at a casino pool party reached a tipping point and then fell into the pool. Who's liable? And is that even a difficult question to answer? Plus we'll update you on the biggest legal news from this week, stay tuned. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the new legal news podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm your host, David Schultz. This is the second episode of On the Merits, and we're so glad you've joined us. For those who missed last week, what we do here is highlight the best legal reporting coming out of Bloomberg Law's sizable newsroom, and also bring you an odd, curious, or just notable legal filing or two from the many dockets that we're tracking. But first, let's take a look at the biggest legal news stories of the week. The trial of Derek Chauvin began in a heavily guarded Minneapolis courtroom, but even though jury selection is now underway, it's still unclear exactly what charges the former police officer is facing. Chauvin is accused of killing George Floyd, an incident that was caught on video and spurred racial justice protests across the country and the world. Chauvin is facing one charge of second-degree murder and another charge of manslaughter, But another charge of third-degree murder, which the judge in the case had dismissed, is now back in play after a Minnesota Court of Appeals ordered him late last week to reconsider. It's taken more than a decade and a half, but for the first time, John Roberts is alone on the Supreme Court. The Chief Justice of the United States was the lone dissenter in an 8-to-1 opinion handed down yesterday in a case that touched on free speech issues and nominal damages. This was the first time in Roberts' nearly 16 years on the court that he was the lone dissenter in a case. 8-to-1 opinions are rare, accounting for just 10% of the court's opinions, according to the website SCOTUS blog, But what's even rarer is Roberts being in the minority, which only happens 3% of the time. And finally, are certain executive branch officials unfireable? That's the question raised by the Biden administration's dismissal of Sharon Gustafson late last week. Gustafson was general counsel of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and was appointed to that position by the Trump administration. She was fired after refusing to resign, arguing that the law that created her position at the EEOC gives it a defined four-year term, which for her wouldn't have expired until 2023. Gustafson's fellow general counsel at the National Labor Relations Board was also dismissed by the Biden administration earlier this year under similar circumstances. The push to raise the federal minimum wage has been in the news a lot lately, but for Paige Smith, the question isn't what should the minimum wage be, but rather, which minimum wage are we talking about? Paige is a reporter on the Labor and Employment Desk here at Bloomberg Law, and she published a story this week about a separate and parallel effort to raise or even do away with the lower minimum wage for tipped workers. These workers, who happen to be overwhelmingly female and people of color, have a wage floor that's less than a third of the standard minimum wage. If Congress can't even raise the minimum wage for non tip workers, is there any chance it will take the next step and address the tip minimum wage? I talked with Paige about that and also asked her to explain to me how the tip minimum wage actually works.
1: So that wage is $2.13 an hour, $2.13 an hour, and the federal minimum wage is $7.25 an hour.
0: So uh, as probably almost every listener is aware, there's talk of raising the um, non-tip minimum wage to $15 an hour. We just had a vote on that in the Senate a couple days ago that uh, failed. Would that plan also raise the tipped minimum wage as well, or would it, uh, how would it affect that?
1: There is a provision in there that specifically spoke to the tipped minimum wage, so that would have phased out entirely a tipped minimum wage of two thirteen by twenty twenty seven, um, while also raising the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Um, as as you just said, that has not that did not make the latest pandemic relief bill, um, and it's just kind of a matter of what sort of action there will be. On, on this provision moving forward now.
0: So one of the th- uh, things that I really liked about your story is that you looked at the data and highlighted that there's a really big racial and gender angle to this, um, that uh, people of color and women are far more likely to be in tip jobs than non-tip jobs. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, this is definitely more than just an economics debate. Um, so lots of data indicates that women generally face... Um, wealth gaps as compared to men, but more so for women working in tipped roles. So the National Women's Law Center, for example, put out some data that said that in pre-pandemic times, the poverty rate for women working in tipped roles was nearly 2.5 times the rate for workers overall. Um, And then when you think about there are inherently these existing gender and racial gaps that show that women make about 82 cents for every dollar earned by their male colleagues and women of color earn even less than 82 cents for every dollar. So it's just their, you know, worker advocates say that a tipped wage structure essentially exacerbates these existing gaps.
0: So as you, you know, just laid out, it's not just an economics debate. Um, You know, there are some real socioeconomic issues at play here. But let's talk about the economics argument. Um, and you know, some people who are arguing against raising the tip minimum wage are saying that you know the uh, hospitality industry and particularly the the um, food industry, restaurants, have had just an awful year with the pandemic, and that raising or eliminating the tip minimum wage now would not be the right time to do that, given that there's a lot of restaurants that are just sort of barely hanging on. What what what, what do you make of those arguments?
1: Well, you know, there is data indicating that, and, you know, anecdotally, we know that restaurants have been really slammed by the pandemic. It's, you know, there have been just, there's been outpouring of support for, you know, your neighborhood restaurant that's just kind of had a tough time during the pandemic. But um, specific data from the National Restaurant Association says that more than 110,000 eateries or bars have shut down either temporarily or on a permanent basis since, you know, over the past year, essentially. So, you know, it's, there's sort of no debate that it's been really challenging for these folks at this time. Um, and then there are also workers who are against phasing out the tipped minimum wage because they say they earn more with tips. So um, it's, this is really a complex debate. And there's, there's no argument about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have the racial and gender issues. We have the economics issues where, you know, a lot of small business owners are very scared about this. Um, But it's not like we don't have examples of how this could work uh, in, you know, in other places. Of course, there are other countries that don't have tips. uh, And there are also other states that have already eliminated the tipped minimum wage. Um, Can you tell me how things have gone there?
1: Yeah, you know, data varies um, state by state, and then you also have particular municipalities or like urban areas. There are a number of different provisions that that urban areas have phased in, 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 either in lieu of tips or as well as tips or to kind of encourage transparency. But what I mean to say is there's a lot of data that one can look at based on you know, either collected by these states or cities. So it's it's kind of hard to say or to make a judgment to say whether this works or not. Um, I spoke with one worker, for example, from Seattle who uh, in Seattle, they in, in the state of Washington, there is no tipped minimum wage. Um, and she was saying that she was advocating against phasing out a tipped minimum wage because she said that she really took a financial hit when, her boss decided to restructure the um, restaurant to either raise costs or essentially when they started the process of phasing out the tipped minimum wage. So, you know, it, again, it varies state to state. It varies city to city. And um, there, I would just encourage folks to kind of look at wide variety of data.
0: Yeah. So it, it sounds like there have been some experiments with eliminating the tipped minimum wage, but the data is... Um... Uh, unclear. finally, all right, let's take a big step back and talk about the politics of this. you know, Democrats have majorities in the um in the house and the Senate and the uh, control of the White House. but there, of course majorities are very, very slim in the Senate literally as mathematically slim as it could possibly be. um we just saw there was a vote on the minimum wage. it failed. do you think that uh it it will be possible to either raise or eliminate the tip minimum wage um, at the federal level, given that raising the non-tip minimum wage is proving to be something that may not even be possible.
1: Yeah, I think it's also important to keep in mind that Obviously, it's much easier to just say raise the minimum wage rather than raise the tipped minimum wage. There's just another <laughs> sort of add-in there. Yeah,
0: that's it's, it, may, it makes the bumper sticker a little bit longer.
1: Correct. So I think that there are a lot of conversations going on right now about raising the minimum wage. I know that on March 7th, for example, um, the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki again reaffirmed that... Biden is committed to raising the minimum wage and economists have indicated that this is, you know, a priority if um, federally there, there's going to be some um, movement or a, a path to greater equality, if you will. So I think that there is definitely momentum behind raising the minimum wage. And as you said, I, I wish that I had a crystal ball to predict exactly what would happen. Um, I don't, but I think the momentum is there. The conversation certainly has not gone away even after it didn't make the cut for the latest pandemic relief bill.
0: Well, the the it's clearly, as you mentioned, the White House is not giving up on this. Um, but I just get this. Uh, do you get the sense that this is this is a battle that's going to be moving to the state level, that there's going to be, you know, uh, activists are going to push state to state rather than maybe at the federal level, because it just seems like maybe this can't get done in Congress. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but what do you think about that?
1: Well, I think that there, I I know that there are a number of states, like I said, there are a number of states and cities that have already taken substantive action on this. Um, I know that Alaska, California, Minnesota, there are a number of states that just don't have a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers anymore. So yeah, I think that that could definitely be a path forward, but I think On a federal level, we're still hearing these conversations. So I wouldn't say that we should shelve it just yet (laughs) uh, and kind of keep monitoring.
0: Uh, Paige Smith, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. We have a crew of reporters and editors here at Bloomberg Law that we call our legal intelligence team. And they track literally hundreds upon hundreds of legal dockets across the country, all the time. And as you might expect, they see some pretty interesting stuff now and then. So one of our editors on that team, Rob Trichinelli, is here today to tell us about something that caught his eye. It sounds like you have got a case for me involving a slip and fall. Um, Can you go into the uh, fact pattern here and let me know what went down?
2: Yeah, the Third Circuit, Last week uh, had a, a pretty uh, short order on this, but we had a, an after dark pool party at the Harris resort in Atlantic city um, where a, a woman got pushed into the pool and was suing, she was suing the casino the uh, for it. And um, you know, it was, it was a fairly short order from the, um, from the Third Circuit, but it's grounded in very basic negligence law. And it's one of those first things that, you know, every 1L learns what is the tort of negligence. But even here, you have a federal judge getting overturned because the judge didn't apply the standard correctly. So
0: before we get into all of that stuff, we should say what exactly was the harm that this uh, uh, woman... Uh, sustained. I get the sense it wasn't just a, a blow to her ego.
2: Right. There was a, uh, a. It was called a pool after dark party at the Harrah's Resort in Atlantic City, and there was, you know, um, drinking and dancing, and there was a pool at the center of the venue. Uh, the, the, the The opinion says there were about 1,300 people there, which sounds like one of those unimaginable things these days. But the, you know, the the the, the facts here predate the coronavirus, and um, you know, a, a woman got pushed into the pool and 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 injured her hand.
0: So uh, she injured her wrist. She sued the casino. Um, and did she win
2: in the lower court or lose? So she lost, and and the idea was that this this brings into what is known as premises liability, where if you know I just have my house, if you jump my fence and you're not supposed to be there and you fall into my pool, it's different from Harris the casino saying, "Hey, we're having a party." for a lot of people we're going to be serving alcohol um and there's going to be drinking and dancing and so you know if I'm Harris if I'm a big casino what duty do I owe people that I'm inviting onto my property to party and celebrate and and the the woman who fell into the pool lost her um case at the federal trial court because that court said that you know that the hazards of such an a uh, such an occurrence are obvious um and so anyone who is participating in this party, assumes the risk of falling or being pushed into the pool. But ultimately, that was a misapplication of the law and the Third Circuit reversed. So it sounds
0: like this was uh, a little embarrassing for this lower court judge. It sounds like, um, you know... As you mentioned, this is uh, the, one of the first things they teach you at
2: law school uh, yeah, you know you think of um, torts as one of those one one l courses that everybody has, and negligence is certainly one of the first you learn because you know there 's a, there's a, a very helpful, easy to memorize mnemonic for going through it. You know everybody thinks, okay, duty, breach, causation damages, what did I owe the hurt person?" did I breach my duty to them? Did my breach cause it? And what was the harm? And it's one of those things that everyone else kind of gets hammered into their minds and, you know, memorizes and tries to fit to the fact pattern on their torts final. And here the, the lower court um, had said, well, it was a, an unsafe environment. Therefore, the, the, the party goer assumed the risk of falling into the pool. But the the, the 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 appeals court said well no you didn't you the lower court didn't go far enough not only do we have to consider that but we have to consider is it also obvious to the casino um, does the casino anticipate the harm despite everyone who attends the party knowing about it and here yes because the the woman in question here was not the first person to fall into the pool it had happened you know eight to ten times in the previous year so. The casino should have known, and they owed a higher standard to protect people and prevent people from falling into the pool at their after dark parties.
0: Whoa. Well, uh, thank you, Professor Tricinelli. I really appreciate that. I will remember duty, breach, wait, duty, breach.
2: Causation uh, and damages. Causation,
0: duty, breach, causation, damages. Duty, breach, causation, damages. Thank you very much for that. We really appreciate it. Uh, Rob Tricinelli is uh, an editor on our legal intelligence desk. We'll be back next week with more odd legal filings. Thank you, Rob.
2: Uh, great to be here, uh, and thank you for promoting me to professor.
0: That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our executive producer is Josh Block, and our editor is Jessica Coombs. Reach out to us on Twitter if you have anything on your mind. We have the handle at BLAW. That's right, at Law. Just that, at BLAW. Thanks for listening, and we hope to
3: see you again next week. Hi, this is Adam Allington, the host and producer of Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Law. It isn't hyperbole to say that the murder trial of George Floyd is likely to be one of the most significant court cases in a generation. In fact, in the nine months since Floyd's death at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer, the name George Floyd has become synonymous with a growing movement for police reform, as well as a massive racial reckoning that has spread to all corners of American society. As the trial unfolds, the Uncommon Law podcast will be reporting on the trial in real time, or quasi real time given the amount of interest in this case and the impact it's sure to have we felt that it was important to be part of that discussion so if you find yourself interested in this case either in terms of social justice or because of the legal theories and precedents it touches on or just because you might be on your own journey learning about issues of race and racism then i think this is the podcast for you just click download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts thank you